The health and care sector is undergoing fundamental change and facing profound challenges. On the 1st and 2nd of November, the King's Fund's annual conference 2022 will bring together leaders to explore the impact of current reforms and share their experiences of working in the system. Book your ticket via the link in the show notes. For the third time in six years, the next Prime Minister of the UK will be chosen by a small proportion of the electorate, Conservative Party members. On the 5th of September, we'll find out whether Liz Truss, or looking less likely at the moment, Rishi Sunak, will succeed in becoming leader of the Conservatives and therefore Prime Minister. Whoever wins, they'll inherit a health and social care system in a state of steady crisis and will step into post ahead of what is predicted to be another difficult winter. In this episode, we'll be discussing the immediate health and care pressures that the PM will need to address and the impact that multiple short-term Prime Ministers have had on solving those long-standing challenges. Welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we explore the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Jo Vigor, Assistant Director of Leadership and Organisational Development here at the Fund, and I'm delighted to be joined by a panel of colleagues from the King's Fund for this episode. Policy Advisor Charlotte Wickens, Director of Policy Sally Warren, and Senior Policy Fellow Simon Bottery. Welcome to all of you. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast and it's a real delight to be working with colleagues on this recording. Thanks, Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. Great to see you all. This is the third time in six years that a new Prime Minister has been chosen outside of a general election. What impact does this disruption have on the health and care system? Sally, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Joe. Uh, and a really important question because the health and social care system, whilst it can sort of feel like it's it's constantly got short-term issues to deal with, actually really needs long-term thinking. You need long-term thinking about how can you change your workforce, so how can you train the right amount of staff to have the right skills and have them in the right place. You also need long-term thinking to think about capital investment, how to build new hospitals, get new diagnostic equipment. And also you need to think long-term to think how can you help the population shift its health? So what can you do to try and change the demand for health? And if actually what you end up having is a government that's thinking very short term, three prime ministers in six years, it means those long term decisions can really just get avoided and get skipped. And then you're left facing with the consequences of that. And right now, the big consequence we're facing is a failure of governments over the last sort of one or two decades, to be honest, to really address workforce planning. And that now means we don't have enough staff to be able to deliver the quantity and quality of care that the public rightly expect. Thanks, Sally. You've outlined there the need for long-term planning and long-term thinking, which we haven't had much of. But interested to hear your views on what you think the immediate health and care challenges for the next Prime Minister are. Simon, do you want to just have a sort of set out where your thinking is around social care and then let's move on to Charlotte and Sally. Yeah, thanks, Joe. I mean, the, the next Prime Minister is going to face an absolutely bulging intro when it comes to social care. One of the immediate issues is going to be thinking about workforce challenges, something like 165,000 vacancies in adult social care, which means that there simply aren't enough staff to deliver the care that people need. That's a huge problem for those individuals, but it also has knock-on effects across the rest of their health and care system. And the most obvious example is people not being able to get out of hospital because uh, because there aren't the care 
workers to, to provide the social care they need. So there's a huge problem in workforce, big problem with backlog. Uh, local authorities are really struggling to deal with the post-COVID backlog. Around about half a million people, over half a million people, in fact, waiting for either uh, initial assessment or review or indeed to receive the services that they might need. And local authorities also struggling with you know, long-term funding issues. You know, Sally talked about this being 10 or 20 years worth. Well, social care is a classic example where there are long-term uh, pressures on demand and local authorities don't have enough money to meet that uh, demand. And so they're not quite sure what they should do next and where they turn in terms of the cash. And then finally, the thing that they have also got to deal with uh, and, and the UPM will have to deal with is we're just about to introduce quite major reform, reform to charging in adult social care. So that's classically the introduction of a cap on people's lifetime care costs and a, and a few other things. Those things are in train to be introduced in October 23. And local authorities are desperately trying to work out how they actually do all of that stuff. So, you know, you've got these, you know, four or five big chunky issues that are sitting there, mm. which a new PM is going to have to get to grips with really very quickly indeed. Thanks, Simon. Charlotte? I think we've got a lot of long-term issues that have built up and now kind of coming to a head in a, a kind of a way that means there's an immediacy to a lot of these issues. If you look at kind of ambulance waiting times, that was a pre-pandemic problem in terms of quite a lot of the performance that the system they were missing a lot of waiting time standards even before the pandemic and then the pausing or stopping in some cases of services over the course of the pandemic means that those waiting lists have just continued to grow and now we're at a point where it's kind of millions and millions of people on a waiting list compared to pre-covid when the numbers were still not great but they weren't anything like that there is a lot of issues that have been building in the system for a long time and now the new PM is going to be confronted with a system that it's all coming to a head at the same time um, in the same way as kind of if you look at capital which is not um, a particularly in, it doesn't get headline news particularly because it's not um, it's not as disastrous as someone having to wait hours and hours for, for an ambulance to arrive there are hospitals that are now so dangerous that they've had to close off bits of wards because the capital investment hasn't been there over the last 10 20 years so now we're facing not only a workforce crisis, but a crisis in capacity of being able to actually see people in physical space. Thank you. And Sally, have you got any other points to add to that? Because I think we're, we're coming on to a question really about where is the new PM going to be in all of this? So is, is there anything else you want to add to that before we move on to that part of the conversation? Yeah, I'd just briefly put health and care in the kind of immediacy that's needed there in the context of the rest of the to-do list for the Prime Minister. So 5th of September, the Prime Minister will be announced. The first thing on their to-do list will be around the energy crisis and the cost of living crisis. And that's hugely important for the population as a whole. It's also hugely important for the health and care system, actually, because we know cost of living, and particularly if people are really struggling to be able to heat their homes effectively, that will have immediate and also very long-term impacts on people's health and therefore on demand for health and care services. So there's a huge thing at the top of the to-do list for the Prime Minister that will cost huge amounts of money to fix. And then really the Prime Minister's got 
two, maybe three weeks tops after they get in for them to have a credible plan for winter, which is how can they get the health and care system through winter by using levers which can have a quick impact. Things like social care pay that Simon talked about, that's a quick way to keep capacity in the system. Will the Prime Minister step up and resolve the issue around doctors and their pensions, which is preventing doctors being able to do more work and increase capacity? There's a real need to do a lot of things in a short period of time if you're going to give the health and care system the chance to run up to this. But it isn't the only thing in the in the in-trade. Thanks, Sally. And I do think that brings us on to really thinking through, you know, at the time of recording, health and social care seem to have been largely absent. It just seems they've not really been talking about this in terms of their campaign from Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. Well, I think from the social care point of view, that's absolutely true. It's been difficult to hear a sort of reasoned debate about adult social care. We've just had the odd snippet of information. So Liz Truss has has, has raised the issue of the health and social care levy and talked about maybe more of that money going to adult social care, which, you know, adult social care would love to see that extra money. But there's obviously a real concern that actually, I'm not sure that we can actually reduce the money that's going to the NHS to pay for things like the elective backlog. So it's felt like these are little snippets of of conversation, almost sound bites of discussion around adult social care, when really what the sector, and I think most people are crying out for, is a proper reasoned discussion and a debate about what actually are we going to do about these major issues. And I think, Joe, for me, there has been a real disconnect between the issues which the public consider to be important. If you look at all of the kind of polling about what issues are of concern, it's cost of living, it's NHS access. We've seen through some of our survey work through the uh, BSA about really at the high levels of dissatisfaction with the NHS. Those issues haven't really featured. And this goes back to this is a leadership campaign for a very small portion of the electorate rather than for the whole of the country. That also to me says a lot of what we're facing with health and care is Either the things you need to do are quite technical. Sorting out doctors' pensions is not something that's going to excite huge parts of the electorate, but it's a technical step that needs to be taken that's really important to unlock extra capacity. The other parts of what we're needing to say with health and care is it's going to take a long time to fix. Elective backlogs are not going to disappear over the next 12 months. This is years of work to think about training uh, the right workforce with the right skills. All of that's really hard. That's really about trying to have a trade-off conversation and an honest conversation with the public about what improvement they can they expect over what time. That's not the kind of conversation that an election is suitable for, to be honest. They will have to address this over the next couple of years. If we just step back, from our perspectives, do we have a good idea on some of those really hard areas about how either of them would approach those challenges? So let's assume we know one of them is going to get into office. Have we got an idea about how they would approach some of those challenges, such as workforce or backlog? What's our intelligence telling us? I think if you look at um, some of the comments that have been made over the course of the leadership election, I think particularly if you look at GP access, so Rishi Sunak actually tackled this in one of the hustings and he said that his solution to the problem with GP access would be to sort out people who miss appointments. So it's coded as a did not attend if someone doesn't turn up to an appointment that they've booked. And he was suggesting that that would be a way to solve this, to kind of put people off from not attending these appointments which are so kind of wanted and valued. But I think the problem with those kind of solutions is that they're based on the wrong kind of analysis of the problem. It's the people who probably most need the care, who for various different reasons can't attend an appointment they've booked. They might have no childcare that day 
and therefore that's one thing that unfortunately gets pushed down the list of priorities. Thanks, Charlotte. And it also brings me back to something you said, Sally, at the start of this call, which was around workforce being one of the biggest challenges. And this government, even before we got into the leadership race, having some opportunities to really think about the concept of workforce planning and putting that into legislation. And that's not happened. Where do we think the thinking is on something like that, which is so fundamental to the future of the health and care system? I think, to be honest, Joe, it's difficult to tell from what, what the candidates have said as to, to where they're thinking. So with Rishi, the strong suspicion is that the Treasury have been one of the major forces that have been pushing against any drive to improve workforce planning or improve transparency about it. There may well be a sense of that Treasury type of thinking being in how Rishi uh, thinks about the issue. With Liz Trust, I think, to be honest, we just haven't heard enough from her about this. And when I think about each of the candidates, I think Rishi, where he has talked about detail, has been pretty much continue on as we are with maybe trying to push a bit faster. Liz Trust has been really diagnosing the wrong problem. So the things she's been talking mostly about have been really about trying to say that there's waste and you can drive more efficiency in the NHS. Nobody's going to pretend the NHS is a perfect model of absolute efficiency. But the idea that you could just take 10, 12, 13 billion pounds out of the NHS without having serious implications for the quality and quantity of care it could provide just isn't there. We know if you look at all sorts of international comparisons, the NHS is actually undermanaged and under-administrated rather than being kind of bloated in terms of all of that. So when she comes in with her new cabinet, I think that will require some really difficult choices about how do you help shift what has been a long-held resistance to doing long-term planning on workforce, which in the long run, it is surely cheaper to have the right amount of workforce because you're then not paying for locums, etc. But actually, there's been a real uh, a real institutional blindness to the need to do that. And I think the kind of perpetuation of these myths, I think as well that Sally, you referred to the, uh, the efficiency kind of myth around managers and around the NHS being kind of frivolous with their money and wasting it on bureaucracy. And then also kind of around funding and around how much money the NHS eats up. These are really well held beliefs that kind of come through in a lot of these different discussions so the idea that taking 13 billion out of the NHS would be totally fine because they'd be able to either save through efficiencies or just reduce the level the number of managers and that would equal that 13 billion that you could then put straight into social care it's a short-termism of thinking that kind of ignores the particularly on funding the kind of historical underspend that happened from kind of 2008 until 2018 where we saw much less than the kind of historical average going into the NHS. And that has stored up a lot of the problems that we're now seeing come to a head today. I think that's right. There's something about election campaigns, isn't it, that, uh, you know, they tend to run towards clear problems and simple solutions. That's what the candidates want to be able to identify and come up with. And health and care, actually, the problems generally aren't very clear. They are pretty muddy. And the solutions certainly aren't simple. If you look at social care and you look at the issue of workforce pay, you're looking at something like a million and a half care workers employed by 17 and a half thousand largely private sector, certainly independent sector organisations. Even if you decided that you were going to put money into that to do something about pay, it's not completely clear how you would go about doing it. So you can understand that the candidates steer clear of areas like this, which are complex. I think what we've got to hope 
is that they are recognising that these problems exist and they're recognising that really the problem, the solutions aren't that simple. Thanks, Simon. I think that is a really good segue into there are a lot of misconceptions about what's really going on in health and care. And Charlotte, you did a great piece recently publicly about looking at some of those misconceptions. So you wrote about that. We regularly come across these misconceptions. What impact do you think that some of those misconceptions have on what challenges are prioritised for politicians? I think it's similar to what we've just been saying in the sense that the diagnosis is often wrong because it's based on the kind of unfounded thinking that GPs aren't working hard enough. It's very easy for politicians to say that it's lazy GPs who were just looking for an opportunity to close their doors and then COVID came along and they could kind of make access more difficult and put up barriers to people being able to get in the front door. And I think that's very easy for for a government or for a kind of a leadership candidate to say because it, has, it ignores the fact that we don't have enough GPs and we haven't had enough GPs for a long time and despite kind of manifesto pledges from the Conservatives in 2019 to recruit 6,000 more GPs, we had the former Secretary of State, Sajid Javid, saying that that's nowhere near on target. It's very easy to pin the problems with capacity on GPs not working hard enough, whereas actually the GP trainee survey work that we do, you can see that people are really concerned about them burning out. And these are GPs in their very early stages of their career who are already feeling the intense pressure of what it means to, to not be able to open a door to secondary care because of all the problems going on with waiting lists there, to also have to manage much more complex patients now that, or complex issues now that people haven't seen, sometimes seen anyone for two, three years because they stayed away. And so you can kind of unpack why can't people get into the front door so much more than just saying it's because of GPs not wanting to work full time. Everything in health and care you could kind of explain in 10 minutes, but if you've got a leadership candidate in front of you, they want something that they can kind of throw to the electorate and say, look here, I fixed it. So it's a soundbite culture as well there, isn't it, Charlotte, that you're talking about? Let's just move on to a couple of questions about who this really affects. So we've been talking about the leadership contest and the political village But let's not really forget who this is about. It's about users of the health and social care system. That should be absolutely centre to what is happening here. And we noted, and you've you've all sort of alluded to this, that the British Attitude Social Attitude Survey revealed that satisfaction with the NHS has fallen by 36%. It's at the lowest level recorded since 1997. What do we think is behind that steep decline and what does it mean for the NHS? I think it's interesting to see the parallels with the 1997. So I think in the 2000s, we obviously had a kind of similar situation with waiting lists kind of absolutely ballooning and people were absolutely dissatisfied with the care they were getting. And that's when a series of waiting time measures came in. We still have those today, but those are the ones that are now being consistently missed. And so you can see the performance of the NHS intrinsically impacts on how people perceive it and how people are satisfied with it because if we have a system that's free at the point of use and people are spoke are their expectations are that they will receive high quality care wherever they present if you're presenting to A&E and you're waiting over 12 hours understandably satisfaction has kind of fallen off a cliff now and I think Joe 
What's interesting about the BSA survey is, as Charlotte said, the fact that there's a, a, been a big decline and it's in overall satisfaction, but also with individual services as well. I don't think that's a surprise because what that is, is that's the public reflecting either their personal experience of trying to access a service or the fact that they are likely to have friends and family who are trying to access service or they have friends or family that work in the NHS and social care who are telling them just how difficult it is. So if you've got 6.7 million people on the elective waiting list, that's a large proportion of the population. So I think the driver for the dissatisfaction is around access. It's kind of being really difficult to get an appointment with the GP or get planned hospital treatment. But what I actually find really interesting is then when you then kind of ask a bit more about their priorities for health and care, the public has for a really long time said workforce is a is a high priority. So although the politicians are in sort of short-termism, the public get that workforce is, is a real issue and they would like to see more action taken on there. So I think there is space for politicians to have a more adult-to-adult conversation about the really difficult choices in, in the NHS and social care and how to move over time. Finally, the other thing I'd say about the BSA survey is we specifically ask about people's, the sort of the principles of the NHS to try and get, is this about dissatisfaction with current sort of ability to engage engage with the service or is it actually about dissatisfaction with the model we have of the NHS and the support for the principles around the NHS are absolutely overwhelming 90% plus supporting that it should be free at the point of use available to everybody that says to me that the public really really want the NHS but they want it to work better for them and it isn't working well enough for them at the moment you know let's remember when it's not working well enough for them that's people who are in pain anxious because they're on a waiting list, maybe not able to work as they would like, maybe not able to have the quality of life they'd want to connect to their friends and their community. There's a consequence to to people's poor health. So it's unsurprising that they're then anxious about that consequence and, and showing that through dissatisfaction with the service. And that's absolutely true for social care as well. When you look at the results on social care, half of people were dissatisfied with um, adult social care services. And when you ask them why, the main reason they give is about, well, actually, their staff paying conditions just aren't very good and absolutely that's absolutely spot on we've just done a piece of work looking at the fact that you know a big chunk of social care workers could walk into their Aldi or their Tesco tomorrow and get paid better immediately the public gets that social care workers get that I think the government knows that as well but actually pay is just completely missing from any plans it has maybe it just feels like it's a bit too difficult so you know we come back to this thing that Sooner or later, we're going to have to sit down and work out what we're going to do about some of these issues, not least because there's a general election coming up. You've got to feel that uh, the public that is worried about its NHS, is dissatisfied with its social care services, is actually going to expect our politicians to come up with more coherent plans and more thought through and more long term plans than so far we've, uh, we've heard from the candidates, I think. Yeah, thank you. And I think, again, as part of the earlier stage of this conversation, we talked about the relationship between users of the services and citizens and their relationship to their own health. So it would be great to have further conversations about is there an appetite for changing the way that policy and politicians engage and talk to citizens about that relationship to health and, and social care as well. I think that would be one for another podcast, maybe. We've talked about leadership, we've talked about political leadership, we've talked about citizens and patients. What about the staff? I mean, they've had a horrendous time over the last two and a half years. We already know there were lots of issues that were in play before 
the start of the pandemic. What do we think it feels like to be a member of the workforce in health and social care? We hear lots of things about burnout, dissatisfaction, bullying, not great information and data coming through from the um, last year's NHS staff survey. So what's going on for them, do you think? I mean, I think they're doing astonishingly difficult jobs every single day. How they continue to demonstrate the resilience to do that and deliver really good quality care in the face of such challenges, which they have not created those challenges. They are not the ones that haven't uh, thought about workforce planning. They're not the ones that haven't invested in capital to mean they're also now having to deal with you know, buildings which aren't suitable to be delivering high quality care in. So I think what they do is really quite astonishing. The public do recognise that. So actually, most of the dissatisfaction is about dissatisfaction with getting into a service. But then when you ask people about their service, actually, they're really pleased with the quality. So I think the staff working in the sector should really take some heart from the fact that people recognise they're going above and beyond. But fundamentally, just saying, oh, you're doing a great job is not going to be keeping our health and care workforce motivated. So we do need to see some serious action. That doesn't just have to be from government. So there's some things like around pay, which is absolutely critical that we do kind of properly address that. There's then some things around how do you support the health and care staff to not not have burnout in terms of the amount of work. And that's where an honest conversation about how quickly can we ramp up capacity, how quickly can we reduce the backlogs in elective care and, and right across the health and care system. Because if you're just asking current staff to work harder and harder and harder and faster, eventually they will go pop. But there's then a whole host of things that leaders right across the NHS and social care system can and should be doing more on. Because as you say, bullying, harassment, really bad figures, racial discrimination, really bad figures for our staff. What are we doing to really think about how do you create a culture that has supportive teams around individuals to really bring out the best in people's skills? Those are the kind of things that don't cost a huge amount of money, do take time and effort because that you can't change cultures overnight. But I think we've really got to think about how does the leadership across health and care really think about its culture at the same time as thinking, how can you change some of those fundamental things about the amount of, you know, the numbers of staff and how much capacity they're, they're meant to, to lead. But, you know, I I every day kind of feel completely in awe of people who go to work in health and care. I, I wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, there's a reason I, I do my job here and not not in the NHS, not least because I'm scared of blood and needles. So I wouldn't be very helpful uh, in, a, uh, in a hospital setting. But they do do such important jobs and can have such a big impact on the people who need, uh, need their services. So you hear amazing stories in social care, for example, about just how transformative having a really good um, home care worker can be for an individual to really have a much better quality of life, be able to connect to their friends and family, be able to keep well and healthy. It, it can be so transformative. But as I say, they are facing huge pressures every single day. There's something about the government enabling people to still invest in their leadership development, management, to really take on that challenge of keeping staff well and healthy and flourishing in order that high quality safe care can be delivered for all right across the health and care system. Is there anything that the new Prime Minister could put in place in the short term 
to help address any of the issues we've discussed in this episode. Yeah, and I hate to be boring about it, but the thing that adult social care needs most obviously is money. It's been starved of cash for an awful long time in in face of demands on on its services. So it needs money simply to deal with the the current pressures in the system. A couple of of common select committees both said recently, you know, something like £7 billion a year extra as an immediate urgent sort of cash injection to get the system through the problems that it's got at the moment. It's it's in that sort of uh, of order. Um, so money for to deal with uh, demand, to provide more care, money for workforce. We have to do something about pay. There are things I think we could do that would ease the, the situation to get more money into the pockets of frontline care workers so that they're less tempted to go and take that, uh, you know, that sort of job in, in Aldi, for example. Uh, and then I think we also need to support the system to better deliver the reforms that are taking place at, at, at the moment. So local authorities need more help, a bit more cash in order to bring in things like a lifetime cap on care, to look at the extension of the means test, which will mean that more people are coming forward for for assessments. So I hate to be boring, although I'm quite pleased I went first with my, my plea for cash. I would say a credible winter plan is what is needed out of the first couple of weeks. Out of that winter plan there needs to come headroom and capacity for those reforms to be able to start to work and focus on something other than straight kind of operational challenges right now they need to be able to think about the kind of the long term and the population health agenda and tackling inequalities and all those things that they have been set up to to really push forward but there's just no headroom at the moment and so a credible winter plan that can help kind of stem some of this absolute crisis everywhere crisis narrative which obviously must also really be impacting on the staff so for me probably three big headline things one is around that credible winter plan i think some of the things that need to be in that credible winter plan you've got to sort out pensions for senior clinicians you've got to sort out social care pay it's going to be the first step to paying them more uh, in, a, in a long-term reform. I think there's more we can do as a health and care system to really work closely with the voluntary sector. We saw during the pandemic just how powerful the voluntary sector's connection to communities is. So by uh, what is relatively small amounts of funding, uh, but support, we can, can really work with the voluntary sector uh, to boost uh, capacity and support people. Um, thinking about using the uh, some of the expertise and skills of staff where we might actually not have shortages so could the use of community pharmacy and physiotherapy for example support primary care to be able to meet need in a different way so I think there's some quick things that a government could do to help us through winter I think the second thing I'd be looking to the Prime Minister for is we are expecting the first ever, well, the first in about two decades NHS workforce strategy this year. All eyes are on that. If that doesn't get published, that will be quite damning of the government's commitment to long-term thinking about health and care. So I, I would expect to see that. And then finally, something I'd like to see them stop doing. There have been really, really cheap and ill-informed attacks on so-called woke issues in the NHS, be that diversity and inclusion officers, uh, be it attacks on managers. Managers are a critical part of how you deliver a health and care system as complex as the one we have is. The NHS and social care relies on a huge number of staff who have come from overseas. So we should be thinking about how we can make sure they are feeling included and welcomed into our system. And all of the stats tell us they are not at the moment. Finally, this is a health and care system that delivers to 
every member of our population. Our population is diverse as well. We have to have a health and care staff who can engage with and empathise and understand how to deliver services in a way that meets the needs of those populations. So I don't like the term woke. I don't like the attack on woke. It, it is extremely unhelpful in a health and care context where you want all uh, groups across all communities across our population to have confidence in the quality of service they will get when they walk into our, our health and care services. So I'd like that to stop very quickly. Thanks, Sally. I think such an important point. So listen, Rishi, Liz, you've heard it here from the King's Fund team and we will be watching you carefully and we will be commenting on how your new premiership is going. That's all we've got time for today. I want to thank you so much, Charlotte, Sally and Simon for joining me. And for people listening out there, you can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. And you can get in touch with us via Twitter. Our account is at the King's Fund. Love to hear from you. Lots talked about today. This episode was edited by Bespoken Media. Thank you also to our podcast team for this episode, Emma Sheffield, Jen Thorley, Andrew McCracken and Jordan Reed. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate and review this episode wherever you get your podcasts from. And of course, thanks to you all for listening. We hope you can join us next time.